Hello and welcome to Unheard and I don't know quite what we're going to call this podcast yet but those of you who listen to the weekly podcast that I, Tim Montgomery, do with Aisha Hazrika will remember that last week um, we had Peter Franklin as our guest and uh, Peter Franklin edits our Unpack column which every weekday he writes a column after him scouring the global press and he talks about interesting things that he's found and we had such a good response to it we've certainly decided for the time being to experiment with talking to Peter every week just so that those of you who don't and why don't you read his uh, daily column online uh, have an opportunity to hear him talk about it in a, in, in a podcast uh, setting so um, I'm going to uh, be uh, interrogating Peter again today and I'm joined in more ways than one by Amanda Whiting. Um, Amanda, I say it in more ways than one because you're not only joining us for this uh, new weekly Unpacked podcast, but you've joined Unheard as deputy editor. So congratulations, thank you. Are you looking forward to working for Unheard? Uh, absolutely, and for me perhaps being the first international accent on this podcast. Yeah, and um, where people probably now get gathered that you're an American. Where, whereabouts in America do you hail from? Um, well, I was raised in New Jersey, but I'm actually moved to London from Washington, D.C. It was time for me to escape. And doing journalism before? Uh, yes, I was at Washingtonian Magazine and a few other magazines before that, but I'm excited to be working at Unheard now. That's what we wanted to, to hear. So, um, Peter. Um, <laughs> welcome back. Um, we've done um, uh, the same as we did last week. We've picked three of your unpacked columns. Normally what we'll try and do, I think we'll pick three of your most recent ones. But given that we're uh, uh, kind of starting off, we, we've chosen two from this week and one from a little bit further back. And um, if people go to uh, the feed on Unheard, which is our blog, um, uh, you will be able to find easy links to the uh, columns that we discuss in this podcast. But um, let's uh, start off with something you wrote about a week ago, um, Peter, uh, headlined, many in the tech industry are avoiding their products. Should we do the same? And you revealed this amazing statistic um, in there that um, people on average touch, swipe or tap their phone 2,617 times a day. Are you a 2617 person, Amanda, or more or less, do you think? I might be pulling the average up because I realized as soon as I read this that I never just pick up my phone. Every single time I pick up my phone, even if it's just to put it in my pocket, I will hit the home button or I will swipe at least one or two things. So I'm constantly interacting with it, even when I just mean to like move its position in my life. <laughs> so. so, Peter, why does it matter that we spend this amount of time on our phones and interestingly you've discovered this group of people that have decided not to spend this amount of time on their phones well it matters because um if you're so absorbed in your phone the digital world um then by definition you're not paying attention to the non-digital world which some people in the old days called the real world and isn't it called the meat world, as in M-E-A-T? Some people call it the that meat world, don't they? The meat world. Oh, that's charming. <laughs> <laughs> well, good one for vegetarians, but anyway. Um, yes, so, and there's plenty of evidence to show that, you know, this isn't just a trivial um, impact. It 
really is distracting people from productivity at work, from um, learning at school, um, from even talking to their own uh, nearest and dearest. And um, it's a serious problem. And you mentioned that some people are taking extraordinary measures to cut themselves off from this source of distraction. And um, a fantastic article which um, uh, my piece is based on is um, by Paul Lewis in The Guardian. He l talks to various people in sort of Silicon Valley type people who um, do various things like one guy has a special uh, switch which cuts off access um, uh, to the internet uh, from his house uh, for a set time every day. So there is this sort of um, offline time which is guaranteed. Um, another person, a uh, um, Silicon Valley executive, um, talks about how she um, has someone to read her social media pages for her so that she doesn't have to do it and she can be more productive. So when the experts are cutting themselves off from their own products, then you kind of know <laughs> that there is something fairly serious going on. And I, I think the expression you use is something like, true of the drug industry, never get high on your own supply. And yes. <laughs> are, they, are, they, um, are they basing their, their abstinence from the smartphone or whatever world on evidence? Or what, is there something that they're not telling us that we should be aware of? Or, or they, is this just something you observe that they're doing and you're wondering why they're doing it and perhaps we should learn, learn from it? Because a lot of people would say, when you're on your smartphone, you're reading news, you're connecting with friends in mm -hmm. a different way that these are, these are alternative ways of um, interacting, learning, exploring. They're not necessarily inferior ways. Well, I think journalists, and we're all in one uh, respect or another um, in that business, are precisely the wrong people to ask about this. Mm. This is kind of our job to always be um, plugged into what's going around, to picking up bits of gossip, to getting links to really interesting articles like this mm -hmm. one in The Guardian. And so for us, um, social media, especially Twitter, I guess, um, is fantastic. It actually makes us in many ways more productive. Um, I mean, there's always a danger if you you are constructing too restricted a bubble around you that it actually cuts you off from some things that might be going on. But any journalist who um, knows what they're doing will be listening far and wide, and these tools are fantastic for that. Unfortunately, um, or perhaps fortunately, most people in the world doing proper jobs are actually trying to concentrate on something, trying to be, trying to actually push at the frontiers of knowledge or technology or whatever it might be. And that requires concentration, it requires focus, it requires sort of getting in the zone and not being distracted. And I think that is what um, uh, all of these fantastic products um, but addictive and distracting products, that's where the harm is, is that it, it, it's a constant distraction, constant source of distraction 
people are constantly defocusing from what they should be looking at. Even apparently, uh, this is what the research shows, you have your phone, even if you're not looking at it, the very fact that it's around is actually pulling your attention away mm. from where it should be. Because it's like having someone actually hovering at mm. your shoulder. Um, they might not be talking to you, um, but nevertheless, there's that sense, there's that tension that actually there's something else that might be paying attention to you. Um, and, and that you need to sort, you, there's something that you need to attend to. That's really damaging. It's a real indictment of journalism and also a clear career path for phone addicts. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, let, let's move on to, um, we've done a lot of technology. Let, let, let's, let's do something that is much more sociological, I think, in, in nature that, again, you wrote um, this week. And um, you talked about the differences between honour, victimhood and dignity cultures. Give us a, give us a brief description of each one of these cultures and why you think us understanding these different cultures matters. Well, this comes um, well. This comes via um, the uh, psychologists Jonathan Haidt, which uh, a number of people will be familiar with, and um, he he um, cites this paper by two sociologists, um, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, and what they do is look at we could almost call it three periods of history. Um, Honour cultures are where, well, let's give, uh, maybe think about, you know, the samurai or some, some sort of, or maybe um, chivalry in a, a sort of Western context, where sort of slights to your honour, to your, to your standing in society, have to be responded to, if necessary, with violence. Because unless you can prove that you're willing and able to defend yourself, you will become a target for those trying to take you down. And in a sort of chaotic, um, uh, sometimes disorderly society where there is no police force, um, if you want to maintain your status as the Lord, as the Knight, or whatever it might be, you or need to be... Or, or indeed the editor, yes. I mean, <laughs> actually, you, um, within some companies, actually, there is a sort of honour culture. Okay, so going I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit. That's okay. the, the honour culture. That's honour culture. Yeah. Give, give us the, the alternatives. Dignity culture is really what took over from honour culture. And that is the idea that everyone should be automatically accorded dignity. Um, and furthermore, that they shouldn't have to fight for it. It's something that the forces of law and order will guarantee on your behalf. So you could see honour cultures, um, sorry, dignity cultures, gradually taking hold as things like police forces became regularised um, gradually over time. Um, and um, those cultures are tend to be quite peaceable, they're not chaotic, they are law-abiding, and everyone can, you know, be fairly secure in how they're regarded. So there's no need, if someone 
if someone insults you, um, you don't need to massively react to it um, because actually there's not much at stake. No one's going to do anything seriously bad to you because you know the authorities would deal with them if they do. And that is in contrast to the third of these three cultures, the victimhood culture. The victimhood culture, well, the argument here is we're gradually slipping into a victimhood culture, which is a kind of mirror image of the original honour culture. So that if someone does insult you, there's some sort of slight against you, um, you do overreact, you don't ignore it. Um, and um, you do still appeal to the authorities um, and something is done on your behalf, but it's not sort of, oh, well, I'll just let this pass. It is... Um, you, 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 yes. write, you write in the piece, in an honour system, you gain status by displaying your dominance yeah. in a victimhood culture by displaying how put upon um, you are. That's right. Um, and so you see a lot of this in universities now where, you know, things that would have... Been regarded as utterly trivial even 10 or 20 years ago, like for instance dressing up in a sombrero um, for you know a Halloween costume or something like that, is now seen as a grave insult to the culture you belong to if you happen to be of Mexican descent. Um, and um, this now requires the authorities, in this case the university, the campus authorities, to intervene very heavily. And if they don't, then there'll be all sorts of consequences, there'll be all sorts of protests. I, I, I mean, I agree the sombrero example isn't that compelling, but I thought it was interesting you used the word slipping. We're slipping into the sort of age of victimhood. I mean, couldn't victimhood and sort of the culture of victimhood be seen as a response to sort of the breakdown of the culture of dignity or the failure of the culture of dignity to, I guess, protect people in the way they feel they need to be protected? Couldn't it be symptomatic of something? Well, I mean, you do see some, you know, people with some very legitimate complaints. You know, if, if you're black and you happen to be continually stopped by the police for no other particularly good reason other than the fact that you're black, then that, yes, that is an attack on your dignity. Um, but I think it's much wider than that. Um, I think there is a, a sort of emotional fragility where everyone is looking to present themselves as, as a victim because, you know, the more put upon you do seem to be, the higher your status can seem. Uh, or at least you get more attention. I think that's quite dangerous. And, and this is by no means about left-wing political correctness only. You see a lot of voices on the alt-right presenting themselves as a victim, saying, oh, men whole, are the ones who are, yeah. who are discriminated against. Mm -hmm. The whole, whole basis of Donald yes. Trump's rise to power, really, isn't Indeed. it? Is presenting yes. people who's voted for him as victims of either existing political class or economic forces or or what have you and with a lot of the th of these things there is 
you know, there can be grains of truth. I mean, clearly you see um, white working class people in America not having a good time of it mm. at all, you know, economically and in other ways, you know, with the opioid epidemic, which we talked about last time. Um, so there are, you know, sort of grains of truth there, but they're being used to, um, to create these victimhood narratives, which I don't think are really helping anyone. And, you know, so what if you're seen as top of the tree when it comes to who's the most put upon, who's mm. the most discriminated against? If no one's actually doing anything about that situation, then I don't see how that's much comfort. But um, it seems that as long as you can portray yourself as the victim, that's, that's enough. How, how much is it that we have two narrow conceptions of our identity now? Is, you know, when, when you have an identity politics where you largely see yourself as a woman or a gay person or a northern person or whatever, that, you know, that takes on too big a form. If you have a broader understanding in terms of family, involvement in community organisations, um, educate is that a does, does a richness of understanding yourself protect you from victimhood culture I think it's interesting um, the way we use the word community now mm -hmm. um, very often it's not about communities at all i.e real communities that is various yeah, people. everything has a community doesn't indeed it? yes um, the only real communities are people that interact on a daily basis that have some sort of shared life that's a real community like our office indeed <laughs> yes that is a sort of i mean quite a dysfunctional community it has to be <laughs> said but, but it it it's um you know so we create these sort of notional communities mm. which fill the void of real human interaction mm -hmm. um and that that's that's kind of sad really and so many of those become sites where you can perform your victimhood, mm. each of those community associations. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, when actually what, what would be much more positive is to um, spend a lot more time building up social capital, um, which actually brings... And, and, and connections between different parts of society. Yes, you know, absolutely. People, there's just loads of people who just do not know how the other half live or don't particularly live and thrive at the moment and I certainly think one of the, being, the best things that David Cameron did when he was Prime Minister in the UK was National Citizenship Initiative yes. whereby he brought people from different backgrounds together because if people do not have any contact with each other there is no understanding and people can get false ideas of what that other people in society are trying to do to you or um, but anyway, we, we must move on to our third and um, final topic. I like having the last word on topics and mm -hmm. just managed to squeeze that in there. Um, this was actually from a little while ago, Peter. Um, and I think this is the theme of yours that I hope we'll be hearing a lot more of. Um, it was from 25th of September, not so long ago, actually. Um, we won't fix capitalism until economists fix their broken theories. Now, one of my favourite moments of uh, recent times was when the Queen... Elizabeth uh, went to economists and do you remember and asked them how none of them had spotted the uh, run-up to the economic crash and economists have certainly got a lot of flack for failing to predict um, events uh, f their forecasts are notoriously um, under fire but your your concern is actually 
perhaps it's not just about refining, getting a little bit better at predicting and understanding what's going on. At the root of economics, something is broken. Absolutely. Um, actually, this piece is inspired by one of the economists who famous, famously did call the financial crisis, and that's uh, Nouriel Roubini. Um, and um, his focus is on this um, rather odd situation in which we're in, where, where we've had really, really low interest rates for a very long time. And in normal economic circumstances, um, the ones that we've come to take for granted anyway, um, having you know, zero interest rates, um, printing money through mechanisms like quantitative easing, um, results in inflation. Um, he points out that if you look at different Western economies, this inflationary backlash is conspicuous by its absence. And he says, well, you know, there's this excuse that the um, recession was incredibly deep and traumatic, which it was, but it started roughly almost 10 years ago now. Um, we've had a worldwide a period of pretty good growth, um, definitely a period of economic expansion, and yet still no inflation despite the fact that we're still keeping in, um, interest rates very low. Um, so, you know, there's a big question of, you know, what on earth is happening? Why aren't economists coming up, for an, uh, coming up with an explanation? Which and, most of them aren't. And you pinpoint the, the, the idea of some places where scarcity is being abolished. Yes, well, this is the idea of, well, in, in normal economics, um, you have this idea of a positive supply shock, which is when, you know, you suddenly, for, for some reason or other, you have a glut mm -hmm. of something coming in to the economy and it pushes down prices, holds down inflation. Like, for instance, if you have, say, a lot of migrant labour coming in, um, because, you know, for instance, um, as part of the EU rules of free movement of labour. Um, and um, that's, that's part of normal economics, that's fine. But his idea is that actually some of these supply shocks, positive supply shocks, are looking awfully permanent. Give some examples just to get people so specific about where scarcity might be abolished. Okay, well, a really good example, of course, is the sort of thing we do here, which is provide news, uh -huh. which, um, and hopefully more than news, sort of in-depth comments that explain what's going rather on. rather than the new. Indeed, as well yes. As the new. <laughs> and <laughs> this is something that anyone can access for free. You don't actually have to buy a newspaper. Um, you could spend all day accessing brilliant journalism, and not just on our site, um, for absolutely no money at all. You can spend all day on uh, Spotify and other similar streaming services accessing fantastic music and it doesn't cost and, you and, anything. And food, you mentioned food. Well food is another example. Um, we now, for most people, um, certainly in Western countries and, and the richer developing countries, 
there is now so much food floating about, so many calories being produced, that the much bigger problem um, than uh, scarcity of food is overabundance, hence problems of obesity. You know, we're, we produce so much food that we can waste it, about a third of it in, in um, Britain, I believe, and still obesity is, you know, our, one of our biggest health concerns. So there you, there you go, another example of superabundance. And you mentioned other examples in the um, article, including energy and even money. And if people want to uh, read the full article, then they can, then they can do so via the feed blog, as, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Amanda, do you buy um, Peter's theory? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just not sure what the takeaway is. Is that, I mean, that might explain why inflation isn't reacting as it has, but I'm still not sure I need to listen to economists anymore. Well, I think we need economists de developing new theories to explain how in some areas, and I really want to stress that this is a very partial phenomenon, um, in some areas superabundance is disrupting the sort of assumptions that we've been operating on so far. And actually, we need economists to think through the new situation that we're in and giving us some new guidelines as to how things and, might And there transpire. are economic commentators like Paul Mason um, of The Guardian, a left-wing sort right, of yes. academic economist who supports Jeremy Corbyn here in Britain. And so but the, you, you don't think there's much of it on the right so much. It's, it seems to be a, more of a left-wing phenomenon is that right or left-wing focus I think that's right and and um, the danger is that because people see certain areas of abundance in the economy they'll think that oh well inflation is not something we have to worry about so why don't governments just fund their deficits by printing more and more and more money and that nothing bad will happen because so far, it hasn't. Um, and I think there are some people on the left who genuinely think this is the way that, you know, we, we can pay for socialism or at least, you know, a, a, an incredibly sort of profligate welfare state um, is by, you know, turn on the printing presses because the old punishments that used to come for that sort of thing aren't going to happen before. I think what we need to realise is that this sort of new post-scarcity situation we're in is very partial and that the economy, there are all sorts of bottlenecks um, and we see that certainly in um, housing where all of this credit floating about is vastly inflating house prices and that's actually really bad for a lot of people. You talked about the uh, turning on the printing presses, one of little things you did this week which I quite like was um, uh, another way of describing the printing press is the magic money tree and you notice magic money tree has the same initials as modern monetary theory. Yes, <laughs> uh, modern monetary theory is actually the, um, well it's the group of economists, not all of them necessarily on the left, who have noticed this sort of very sort of unresponsively inflationary environment we're in and who are saying, well, let's carry on doing things like QE forever because, you know, <laughs> we can now get away with it. Um, well, 
maybe in some respects, if used carefully, this could be an increasingly useful tool, but we've got to be really careful the way we use it because there are plenty of scarcities still left in the economy and um, just pumping excess supplies of money through that will result in asset bubbles and all sorts of other distortions. So we've got to be, we've got to tread carefully. Whatever people might think of your unpacked column, you can't be accused of being lightweight. This is um, uh, brain stretching stuff, which is what we love about it. Um, give us a preview, anything you've got in the pipeline for next week, any topics or subject you're particularly looking forward to unpacking for unheard readers? Well, as uh, readers may have noticed, we're not always that complimentary about the tech industry. So I'd like to do something um, to highlight some of the very good things that companies like Google are doing. And in this case, I'd like to write about the um, what's called Project Loon, which is... L-O-O-N? <laughs> indeed, yes. Right. Which is using sort of weather balloon-like things to bring... Um, internet access to parts of the world that don't have it um, and right now that includes Puerto Rico where their ground-based um, comms networks have gone down uh, thanks to Hurricane Maria I believe it is um, so they, they are using all their skills and abilities to do good things as well mm. and I think we need to remember that sometimes well, glad you're telling that other half of the, the story and Amanda I'm, I'm gonna be leaving I'm this is one of my last acts before I take a week's holiday, so um, you'll be in charge. You've just started as deputy editor, and I'm throwing you in in the deep end, so you'll have Peter's um, good side of tech industry to highlight next week. Yeah, I plan on using some of my 2,000 clicks and swipes to, <laughs> to read it. <laughs> thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Peter. And um, thank you for listening. And um, should advertise our other podcasts. Um, this week, Aisha... Uh, Hazarika and myself talked to Nigel Cameron, our tech editor, about some of the things that he's been writing about that. You can find that on the Unheard website. And also early next week, um, with Nigel Cameron again, um, he's talked about um, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, possible plan to run for the White House. And he met a number of people on both sides of the Atlantic to discuss how that might happen in its desirability or otherwise. So it's audio, audio, audio. Um, for you all over unheard at the moment and I hope you enjoy it all. Thank you for listening.